May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, after two weeks of Advent, we have finally made it to the pink candle. Stacy Regan will probably correct me in a moment and inform me that the color is rose. But either way, we have arrived at Gaudete Sunday, which means rejoice. About midway through the Advent season, a season which is marked by repentance and preparation for the second coming of Christ, we pause for one day to celebrate the joy and gladness of Christ's first and second coming. Because Christ coming to us is profoundly good news. The color pink is used because it symbolizes the new day that is dawning. And it's appropriate that at this point we turn to consider what Jesus' coming looks like. Two weeks ago, Jonathan asked us to consider the question, what time is it? And challenged us to consider the present time that we live in, this time in between the first coming of Christ and his second coming. And then last week, Jonathan examined the question, how should we prepare for Christ's second coming? He exhorted us to prepare for Christ's coming again through repentance and amendment of life. And so, this Gaudete Sunday, having looked at the when and how of Christ's coming, it is appropriate that we consider the what of Christ's coming. What happens when Christ comes? What does it look like? And this is precisely the question we find John the Baptist asking as he sits in prison facing the hopeless an inevitable reality of execution. Are you the one who is to come? Or are we to wait for another? Now, before we look at Jesus' answer to this question, it's important for us to consider what lies behind John's question. If you recall, last week we saw the entire countryside including the Pharisees and Sadducees, going out to be baptized in the Jordan River by John. There is no one in the entire Judean region who has not heard of John. Even the rich and powerful have been submitting to his spiritual authority and direction. And then Jesus shows up to be baptized by John. And John says... No way! You should be baptizing me. I can't baptize you. I'm not even even worthy to take off your shoes. You are the one who is to come. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You are the one who will judge the entire earth and baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then, when John has been arrested... He sends his disciples to ask Jesus if he is the one who is to come. 
So how could John even be asking this question? How could he not know that Jesus was the one he had been waiting for? And you know, this has been a hot topic of debate in the church for about 1,500 years. So I'm not quite sure we're going to totally settle it today. But let me just say this. I could be wrong, but I think John was genuinely struggling with doubt. Here he has been having this incredibly successful ministry where he gets to see the fulfillment of his whole life's calling and purpose. The kingdom of God is being ushered in by the Messiah Jesus. And then he's locked up in prison and on a fast track to execution. Wouldn't you have some questions for Jesus about what was going on? You know, I think in some circles in the church, asking questions is frowned upon. And so we dehumanize the biblical characters and make them completely unwavering in their faith. I think we forget that at the end of Matthew's gospel, when the disciples are face to face with the resurrected Jesus, it says... They worshipped him, but some doubted. I don't know about you, but I take great comfort in that verse. It means that the disciples were human like me. And John's question lets us know that he is human like us too. He has questions and doubts, especially in light of his present suffering. And this seems almost too obvious to point out. But Jesus is in no way offended by John's question. On the contrary, immediately after responding to the question, Jesus launches into praise of John as the greatest person on earth. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. In other words... Jesus responds to John's question with praise for John. And one of the things I appreciated about growing up in this particular church tradition, in the Anglican tradition, is that my questions were always welcomed and celebrated. And I think the Alpha Course is helping our congregation to preserve this aspect of Anglicanism that welcomes questions. Earlier this fall, when I was speaking with the youth group about the Alpha Course, I was struck by something one of the senior high youth said. She said, I haven't always felt like church was a safe place to ask questions, but I think the Alpha Course will help to make it a safe place for questions. And this is the real strength of teenagers and young adults. They're often the only ones who are willing and courageous enough to ask the tough questions about reality, purpose, life, faith, curfews. (laughs) And I want all of us to know that Jesus can handle our tough questions. You aren't going to stump him. Huh, I haven't thought of that before. Why is there suffering and evil in the world if God is so good? 
Jesus is not freaked out by John's question. And he isn't freaked out by our questions either. Jesus is proud of John the Baptist, both for his faithfulness to proclaim repentance to all people, even when it lands him in prison, and even when it leads him to have questions. But John's question also tells us that John didn't realize the full extent to which he was called to be a forerunner of Jesus, a messenger sent ahead of the Messiah to prepare the way. John the Baptist truly is a forerunner of Jesus, preparing the way, even in imprisonment and death. John the Baptist goes ahead of Jesus into suffering and death. And confronted with this suffering, he asks, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus, oddly enough, doesn't respond by saying, Come on, John, you know me. Of course I'm the Messiah. Jesus doesn't give John or us a direct answer to the question. Instead, Jesus points to the upside-down reality that he has ushered in. The evidence of God's inbreaking kingdom that permeates his entire life and ministry. When Christ comes... The blind see, the cripples walk, the diseased are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor get some good news. Jesus doesn't directly point to himself. He points to his deeds and what those deeds say about him. Jesus points to the what of his coming. Now, Jesus' statement directly refers to Isaiah 35, our reading from the Old Testament this morning. And in Isaiah 35, we get this beautiful picture of a dry wasteland being flooded with water and bursting with new life. Those who are weak are made strong. All those who are most to be pitied are leaping around like deer and singing for joy. The oppressed are strong, and the imprisoned have been set free. Rejoice! Rejoice! Restoration has come. Liberation is here. Those who, like John and Jesus, are presently on the way of suffering and death will instead find themselves on the holy way, where no harm can befall them. This is the way that John has been preparing. This is the way, the truth, and the life. One thing that is important to note is that Isaiah 35 is not just about the coming of the Messiah. It's about the coming of God. In fact, the word Messiah doesn't occur anywhere in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 is about when Yahweh himself comes down to rescue his people and set everything in the created order right. In other words, Jesus is saying, God has come to his people. 
The kingdom of God is here, now. Your disciples can see and hear the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Jesus spreads wide his arms and declares, here is your God. I'm not so sure that John the Baptist and even Jesus' disciples were able to understand that Jesus was both the Messiah and God himself in the flesh. I'm not even sure we can fully understand that. But this is the real cause of rejoicing. Yes, it is wonderful news what God does when he comes to us. But the real wonder and hope and joy is that God comes to us at all. This is the wonder and hope and joy that we will celebrate on December 25th. God has come to us. He is with us and he will be with us again. So if that is the what of Christ coming, then what about us? What are we called to do presently? As many of you know, I grew up in Florida, which is like the theme park capital of the world. And so I spent a good amount of my childhood going to theme parks. Whether it was a youth group trip or a school trip or a friend's birthday, I loved going to theme parks, especially ones that had really fast roller coasters. One of my all-time favorite roller coasters was the Montu at Busch Gardens. It was one of these roller coasters where your feet are dangling and you go super fast through all these loops and bends and turns. And I happened to be at Busch Gardens the week that the Montu opened. And the line to get on the roller coaster was just completely absurd. I think it was something like a two-hour wait. But you know what? I rode that roller coaster three times that day. <laughs> it was pretty much the only thing that I did at the theme park all day long. I was able to persevere through the seemingly endless waiting in line for the joy of riding the Montu. And this is something I know that is trivial and silly. So how much more should we endure the present for the joy of Christ's coming? And so I think this is what Jesus is offering to John the Baptist. No, I don't mean he is offering him a ride on a roller coaster. Jesus offers more than just an answer to John's question. He gives a vision of the coming kingdom that is so beautiful, so joyous, so utterly different than John's present circumstances that he is able to endure and persevere. And Jesus offers the same to us today. And no, I'm not advocating for some pie in the sky by and by. I am suggesting that for those who are suffering now, and for those who take no offense at Jesus, the future is definite and sure, and the future looks very good. And I think 
Perseverance and endurance are hard when you don't have a fixed vision of the future to hold on to. When you don't have something to look forward to that is so amazing and so worth rejoicing over that you can muster the courage to face your present circumstances. This is the comfort that Jesus offered to John. And it is the same comfort that he offers to us. Thus, Isaiah says, Be strong. Do not fear. Here is your God. He will come and save you. And James, in today's epistle reading, exhorts us to be patient and endure until the coming of the Lord. And here's the thing. For John the Baptist, who is sitting in jail, the promise of God's coming judgment is profoundly good news. But more than that, Jesus invites us to join him in the what of the messianic age. As Bible scholar Ulrich Lutz writes, we can respond not by formulating a correct messianic answer, but only by actually becoming part of the story of Jesus and by letting the story bring to life a decision about Jesus. What is important is that one become part of the story, the deeds of Christ. No abstract Christological answer can replace this participation in the story of Christ. I heard a story of a team of Christian evangelists who are going door-to-door to share the gospel with people. And they came to one particular door, and after they knocked, it was opened by an elderly Amish man. And the evangelists started going through their list of questions, their spiritual survey. And they got down to where they asked him if he was a Christian. He paused and pulled out a piece of paper and pencil and started writing down the names and addresses of his neighbors. And he said to the evangelists, you should ask these people if I am a Christian. They are in a better position to answer your question. Our lives should be a reflection of what Christ's coming looks like. Our deeds should look like the deeds of Christ. And on this Gaudete Sunday, as we look at the what of the coming of Christ we should ask ourselves how much our life looks like a participation in the deeds of the Messiah. How much of your life looks like the picture we get in Isaiah 35? Each Sunday we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray that, we are, in a sense, reorienting our lives around Jesus' vision of the coming restoration of all things. But during the crush of this holiday season, the bustle of shopping and parties and finals and travel, are we clinging to Isaiah's vision of the coming of Christ? Are we seeking Jesus' vision for a restored creation and a restored people? Are we healing the sick, 
strengthening the downtrodden and bringing good news to the poor. On this Gaudete Sunday, may we rejoice that God has come to us in Christ as we await his coming again. And as we wait, may we cling to the vision of the coming kingdom and persevere in the deeds of Christ. Amen.